The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Three men, with identities forged in the white-hot fires of the 90s comic book boom, now ready to re-examine the era where heroes became extreme, and what magazine gave rise to a market of speculation. If you've got the guts, prepare to enter the world of... Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. Greetings, geeks, and welcome to episode 38 of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. The podcast where we re-examine the 90s comic book boom through the pages of Wizard Magazine. Unable to shake the fact that the Cubert Brothers sounds like an alternate reality 8-bit video game featuring two cute cursing orange fuzzballs and overalls. I'm Adam. That was a long walk. <laughs> and speaking of cute and cursing, we've entered the bad girl era of 90s comics, so I've invited back some bad boys to join me on this episode first from the west week ever blog and in your face online retro pop culture commentary it's william bruce west hey oh good to have you back here and from the house show and hellions talks interview series right here on trn it's kevin hellions hey now, as we get started here, I think it's important that our listeners know that this was not a random pairing of two past guests, like some back issue of The Brave and the Bold. No, no. Listeners to the Retro Network who have checked out the Hellions Talk series know that Kevin and William have actually been online friends for over a decade, but only recently have they actually had conversations on the mic talking to each other in their voices and when they did a few things became clear yes they definitely had been friends for a while yes they definitely had some similar viewpoints and yes they definitely were both into comics and so i have to ask are comics the main topic of conversation for you guys william are you into pro wrestling kevin do you collect power rangers i come and go with wrestling i i'm a casual fan i can't handle three hours of raw but like i follow a lot of twitter accounts and i listen to the house show so i know what's going on but i i can't watch it it just it doesn't do it for me right now <laughs> i mean i have an appreciation and a respect for power rangers and anytime something you know big comes up i'll message will like all right i know this is big but why is this big you know explain stuff to me but my cousins that i'm close to are like 10 and 12 years younger than me so they're when they were growing up they were into power rangers and i selflessly offered to take them to the movies <laughs> and all sorts of stuff. Not not because I want to go. No, no, no. I'm far too mature and adult to want to do Power Rangers. I'm just being nice and taking my cousins. No, I totally wanted to go and they need an excuse. Or to see Amy Jo Johnson. <laughs> yeah. I loved Amy Jo Johnson then. Oh, my gosh. So cute. But, I mean, like, Will and I talk about tons of stuff during the week. And if we had a an R-rated feed on the Retro Network, then we might discuss some of the things and people we talk about on there. <laughs> And I thank you guys for being here to help me out as Michael and Steven are on the set of UFO Club. Yes, I'm getting reports and it sounds like everything went well. There are comic book scenes in this movie. There is so much more that you guys will learn as that gets into post-production. 
But, good news is, you guys have already been on the show, so we don't have to hear your origin stories. But with all that corresponding back and forth, you know, in the old days, you might have just typed up a letter to each other. And so, it's time to open up... Willie Lumpkin's Mailbag. So first of all, we have our secondary letters page because one letters page is not good enough. In the back of the book, we have another one, the market watchers, specifically about comic book collecting and selling and not general questions here. In it, we have one letter from one Jeff Painter of Southern Pines, North Carolina. Dear market watchers, first of all, I would like to say that I am happy that Wizard has devoted a letters column specifically for the price guide section. So someone's a fan of the secondary letters column. My question regards an error on one of the comics I have. My copy of XO Manowar number 19 has two covers on it. Does this printing error add value to the comic? I've also discovered that this issue is the first appearance of Commander Syrup, who is now a member of Valiant's Armorines title. Any help would be appreciated. Now, I know the all of us are very excited to know that that's the first appearance of Commander Syrup with all of the <laughs> merchandise and his movies and everything. I'm happy that we finally tracked that down. Wizard responds with, Don't get your wallet's hopes up, Jeff. These days, a double cover edition of a modern age comic holds as much worth as OJ's alibi. Wow, that's that just puts a timestamp on this letter, doesn't it? Absolutely. <laughs> it's also the third OJ joke in the issue. Okay, we gotta keep track of Todd McFarlane, Jim Lee, and OJ jokes now. <laughs> Today, anybody can go to a printing store and have an extra cover attached to their issue of Death Breast 36. That's (laughs) got to be a bad girl title. Sorry, Jeff. However, most double cover Golden and Silver Age books, which are much more difficult to manually create, have high price tags. Also, if the inside cover is in better condition than the outside, up goeth the overall grading of the book itself. So look for those types of misprints, but not modern age ones. I have thoughts. Yes, let's hear about it. Okay, one, I do find it interesting that errors for comics never increase in value the way a baseball card error would. Because hmm. as a child of the 80s, I remember the baseball card boom and there being a card shop on like every other corner and everyone trying to make a buck off of them. But error comics, no one cares. It's an error. It's it's deemed worthless. It depends um, on the magnitude of the error. Like, if it's something where the run has to get pulped, then they are sought after. Like, there's that, what is it, Elseworlds 80-page giant that fair. had, like, Superman in a microwave or something. Oh, yeah, the baby in the microwave, super baby, yeah. yeah. Like, that one's sought after. But, yeah, like, double cover, that's a fluke. Yeah, and I, I will tell you, like, I, back in the day, in this era, I was going through back issue vids, I picked up a what-if issue of the original run, what if someone else besides Peter Parker had been bitten by the radioactive spider? And I remember when I took it out of the bag and board when I got it home, it had two covers on it. And I was like, what is this? Like, I can't believe it, you know? And so I never tried to get it graded or anything and be like, is this worth anything? But it just, that when I saw that in this letter, it just jumped out at me. I was like, me too. <laughs> Did the extra cover have the actual title on it? You know, everybody dies because that's basically <laughs> every issue of what. The only error I remember getting about once a year in my collecting is when they don't cut it just right and they fold the paper oh, underneath. Yeah. <laughs> so the yeah. 
drove me insane every time. Now, if I'm picking up double covers or multiple covers on one issue on purpose, wasn't there, I want to say it was one of the Robin miniseries where there were variant covers, but they also included the other covers underneath it. So it's like there's five variant covers, but all five are right here stapled on top of each other. I purpose. think they did do one of those, yeah, for, for Robin 2, maybe? I'm, I'm thinking because that was the gimmick, is there were so many different covers. Because yeah. by Robin 3, it was just the motion cover. Next letter here. Very easy question. Very simple. From Mike Farbo in Erie, Pennsylvania. Dear Wizard, what are all of Spawn's powers? Super easy. If you watch the art video that Todd McFarlane and Rob Liefeld are on with Stan Lee there, he clearly says that you create a character and you give them a name so you know the character's powers. Spider-Man, you're going to have a feeling of his powers. So Spawn, got to be easy here. <laughs> Wizard responds, near as I can tell, Spawn has the power to make green stuff come out of his hands and occasionally his eyes. He has the power to skip two issues without missing a beat. <laughs> He has the power to make every comic geek in the world say, oh, Todd, we love you. He has the ability to co-star in perhaps the lamest intercompany crossovers in history. Man, they really hate that Batman crossover. He has the power to have a four-issue run of his title done by top-shelf writers and still suck. But his most amazing and awesome power is the one that allows him to take all the criticism and crap thrown at him in his title and still sell the pants off anything else on the shelf. Truly amazing. Oh, now I, I gotta say here, this is something where, you know, Rob Liefeld, obviously we know, very upset with the way Wizard treated him over the years, and Todd is held up as this golden boy, right? Everybody's like, oh, everybody at Wizard just loved Todd. They kissed his feet, blah, blah, blah. But here he is, Jim McLaughlin, is saying plainly, Spawn sucks. <laughs> Well, and last time I was on, I did Spawn Origins. We talked about it for a while. And I remember this time of Spawn. You had 7, 8, 9, and 10, I think, was uh, Frank Miller, Alan Moore, Dave Sim. And I know I'm forgetting one in here. Neil Gaiman, because Angela in issue 9, yeah. Yeah. But we also had when he jumped and said, ah, I can't finish these issues, but I have a deadline here and probably Diamond at this point is going to be mad at me for missing yet another deadline. So let me release this one and then I'll double back and do these two issues. And I remember that happening. I went kept my comic store. I'm like, why do I have this issue and I'm missing two? Did you not order them? Did I miss? I'm here every week. How did I miss it? No. Nope, they went out of order. All right, whatever, as long as I get my books eventually. <laughs> and I just covered this for those of you who don't listen to our mini episodes regularly. On mini episode 37.5, I read all the comics from Image X Month. And in the Spawn issue, there's actually a full explanation. You know, like Mark Silvestri is drawing that issue, but then in the back, it's all about how they messed up the order. There's actually a reading disclaimer, like basically saying, like, you must read in this order. This one comes out here. This already came out. Blah, blah, blah. And it tries to catch everybody up. And they keep saying, read it in order again. It'll be worth it. We promise it will be worth it. So just try to make the best of a bad situation. I tapped out on Spawn probably before issue 30. Mm. So I was real close to it this time. But I remember when all this came out, I didn't hate it. There's just other stuff I enjoyed more. And I had limited funds. Yeah. All right. Last letter here from Carlos Avila in Commerce, California. Dear Wizard, will Batman meet Spawn again? Wizard responds with, oh, please, no. <laughs> I would be interested in a Batman-Spawn crossover now with where they've taken Spawn and with Batman being, you know, the Bat God, pretty much. He always has a plan. He can never be defeated and stuff. I'd be very curious what someone would do with both characters now. 
Yeah, especially with the artist who is now poised at this era to take over Spawn, who now draws Batman regularly. So yeah, that could be very interesting. And you see a picture of him from Beck at the time of this issue and what he looks like now? Huge difference. Him. Greg Capullo. Pronouns, pal. (laughs) (laughs) Apologies. Yeah, he's a Greg Capullo. He's a big dude now. Yeah, he's going after Joe Jusco. Wasn't that his thing back in the day that he was a big beefy dude, too, and painting all this stuff, so. All right, well, with that, now it's time to go over to our special correspondent, William West, with the... Wizard News! Story tonight for Wizard News. X-Men canceled? Rumors are circulating that Marvel is putting all of their X-Men books on hiatus and giving the artists time off. What is the reason for this apocalypse? Could this be the beginning of a new age for Marvel's Merry Mutants? Gary Guzzo of the Marvel Publicity Department refuses to confirm or deny this rumor, but time will tell. Ooh, that's big news, right? I mean, why would they stop production, essentially, at all their X-Books? I know, it was the biggest seller of their whole line. Considering interviews you've done, Adam, for The Wizard Files, it's funny looking back now, because clearly they knew. Yes. This is clearly like a buzz piece and they knew what's going on. But man, I mean, Age Apocalypse was huge. How tough must have been for them to just keep their mouths shut, too? Well, and if you've listened to the Rob Observations podcast, they actually did their best to egg Image on because the X month that I mentioned that I just covered, that happened because one of the writers over there, Scott Lobdell, was telling Rob Liefeld, like, we have something that's going to knock you guys off the charts. Like, he was just telling them that they have this big, big event. And so they got kind of rallied and said, we got to do a big event. <laughs> Get it out there. And not knowing what was uh, what was coming up. So it's kind of interesting. Okay, celebrated artist George Perez is planning to publish the adventures of his creator-owned character, Gladiator, through Image Comics in 1995. Though the character will exist outside of the continuity of the other Image books, never crossing over with Youngblood or Savage Dragon, which is hard to believe because that guy has appeared in every comic ever. (laughs) So true. Though a promotional t-shirt was produced in 1994 to sell at cons and goes for $100 on eBay, the Gladiator Gladiator comic and character never saw print. I looked this one up because I was very curious about it. And it sounds like some of the Gladiator ideas got morphed into his Crimson Plague book. Did you ever read that book? That book is terrible. (laughs) No, I I own it, but I've never sat down to read it. Do do you know what it's it's about? Oh, yeah. Go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) That, That basically she goes crazy every time it's her time of the month and, like, people die. Oh, no. Yes, yes. George, what were you doing? Well, doesn't George Perez allegedly, I'll throw that in there for you, Adam, allegedly book his convention appearances around when there are fetish cons as well? Hmm, I mean, I've heard of his fetishes, but I was unaware that (laughs) that he tried to line everything up for his travel. Yeah, like, oh, hey, here's, you know, Las Vegas Comic Con and, like, Adult Entertainment Expo is, the, you know, across the street. Yeah, he's been, he's been very open about that for many years. Hey, at least he didn't lie about it. No, no, <laughs> not, 
I'm not judging. <laughs> Next, speaking of comic conventions, Wizard announces that the second annual Wizard Fan Awards will take place at the Philadelphia Comic Book Spectacular on October 21st through 23rd in a massive two-page ad where promised guests include Rob Liefeld, Stan Lee, Joe Casada, and hundreds more to be announced. We can't fit them all here. There's so many. Just show up, kids. <laughs> right, right. Some of those funny book folks will be here. Now, for those of you who remember our Comic Fest 93 episode that we did where we covered Wizard's first big appearance at a con as far as, you know, being a part of it, this was the subject of a major lawsuit because this group came in the same week the Comic Fest 94 was supposed to happen and stole everybody, including Wizard. It basically put Comic Fest out of business. And so they sued the, the guys who were running the Philadelphia Comic Book Spectacular. And that's why we've never heard of them since. <laughs> <laughs> When did comics become a business? Next up, we've got Big Entertainment announces their Techno Comics line, which will launch in November with Leonard Nimoy's Primortals, Neil Gaiman's Mr. Hero, The Pneumatic Man, Gene Roddenberry's Lost Universe, and Mickey Spillane's pulp detective Mike Danger, with others in development. This publisher spent a lot on marketing, but may have been too late in the game for success and sales. What do you guys remember about Techno Comics? Kevin? I know currently I find it in the dollar bins and quarter bins a lot. Yeah, I was going to say, if you've had them in a dollar bin, that's better off than I expect. So you look at the names, and these are fantastic names, but not a one of them is actually writing a book. No. They're just throwing their name on it. Now, maybe they had the concept, maybe someone from Big Entertainment sat down with any one of these people and said, give me an elevator pitch, and we'll put your name on it, and we'll give you some amount of money for it, but then we're off on our own. You can do that, I think, with a character that already existed. You can take someone's concept and say, okay, clearly the original creator is no longer doing Conan, just to pick a name out of the hat here. You can do more Conan stuff, because Conan's already established. I don't think you can do a new character and throw some creator's name on it who had, has nothing to actually do with it. Kind of like the later projects where it's like, here's Stanley's whatever. Stripperella. <laughs> yeah. Whatever that fast running guy was. Yeah. He comes up with the idea in two minutes, signs, you know, someone signs a check to him and then that's it. But there's no heart or passion or, you know, that person's individual creativity before it. So it's kind of doomed to fail. Yeah. I mean, I remember these felt like books, like I saw them on the shelves in, you know, 94, 95. And then I feel like they, yeah, they immediately went to the discount bin and I recently picked up a few. So once the line officially launches in the wizard timeline, I'm going to cover a few of them. They may not be as bad as we thought, but yeah, they certainly had big, big plans for themselves that I don't know played out in the long run i gotta say i'm a little upset with you because <laughs> yes. you're gonna be doing this while your usual co-hosts are not gonna be available to complain about them it is a shame you know it really is that's that's what people tune in for <laughs> I, I have a feeling that these techno comics would produce some good rants I know, but if I want to keep the show going long term, I mean, remember, William, you're the one who pointed out to us that this is almost a decade long endeavor to cover <laughs> every issue. I got to give him a, you know, a little break every once in a while. Do we know if any techno books actually like finished? Because I never I don't remember ever seeing them. I just remember the hand marketing thing, the robot hand. Mm -hmm. But I don't know if any series like is there a complete arc of anything from techno? 
We're going to have to research that, yeah, because did anybody ever get to complete what they had in mind, or did they ever have an endpoint? Oh, well, moving on. <laughs> Defiant Comics announces the winners of their Bad Guys contest, wherein one reader and one comic store owner could submit a written pitch for why they should be killed as villains in an upcoming issue of the Good Guys comic book, as well as earning a cash prize. The winners were Dina Gamboni from Short Hills, New Jersey, and John Such, the owner of Papa John's Comics in Greenville, South Carolina. Insert pizza joke here. Go, Kevin. I hope Papa John's comics is less racist and homophobic than Papa John's pizza. <laughs> Damage control! Damage control! Damage control! <laughs> oh. With Kevin on the show, we knew we'd get a few damage control moments here. Just the beginning, I'm sure. Let me jump ahead then. I mean, we can continue the Defiant Comics point. <laughs> as long as we're saying this, let me get it in here. Will, I'm, I'm going to be very interested in your pronunciation of the next news beat here. Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> finally, Snack Posse is a new educational... <laughs> It could have been okay. <laughs> it's a new educational comic designed to teach kids about the importance of proper nutrition in their diets, because that's what every kid wants from comics. Focus <laughs> groups of school children responded positively to the posse, and now they're looking to expand into cartoons, TV shows, and video games. The cover of the second issue shows the heroes battling a gang of smoking Joe Camel lookalikes, which couldn't have sat well with Big Tobacco, and may have spelled the end for the snack posse <laughs> oh guys i have found them if you guys you have yeah both issues on ebay so th this did get published it did exist i'm not even going that far as to uh cover this but it, it is pretty hilarious to look at this group okay this is way more oh, because it's autographed i'm like this is way more than i expected yeah autographed by whom captain planet <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I just saw his autographed. I haven't even looked yet. Uh, description doesn't even say who autographed <laughs> A member of Big Tobacco? Yeah. <laughs> Looks Danny something with an Yeah, do you see those Joe Camels on there? On the second one? Yeah, issue two. They're not that bad. <laughs> I mean, they got the Don Johnson look, and they got the sunglasses on. I mean, they're pretty overtly every graphic of Joe Camel that was on a cigarette machine at a restaurant, every sizzler I went to as a kid. I mean, the funny thing is, I remember when Joe Camel got pulled, and they said that he, he looked like something else. And these look more like a camel and less like something else than actual Joe Camel does. Should have hired the artist from Snack Posse to do their, <laughs> their graphics over there. All right. Well, with that, I think it's time to get into our table of contents. So issue 38 of Wizard has an October 1994 cover date and features a Cubert Brothers Jam cover, yes, of Wolverine battling his arch nemesis, Sabretooth. Now, Adam Cubert drew Wolverine and Andy Cubert drew Sabretooth, but this Mutant Magazine cover actually bumped a previously scheduled cover by DC Comics artist, a collaboration between Carl Kiesel and Tom Grummet, also awesome artists, and that featured the likes of Robin, 
Robin, Azrael, Superboy, Superman. I mean, it just goes to show you it couldn't win against Wolverine in the 90s. So it's kind of a shame. And I'm really surprised they didn't just use it later. Like, it's one of those things where it's like, you had a great cover. It, those characters were evergreen, at least for a few years. <laughs> Seems like you could have gotten another issue, you know, like just doing an alternate cover. They were starting to double up at this point, so. I mean, they doubled and tripled up. Why not just use the cover? And honestly, I probably would have bought that cover over the Wolverine Sabretooth just to have something different. Yeah, for sure. Now, uh, speaking of which, the cover story for this issue is titled Logan's Run, and it's an interview with Wolverine writer Larry Hama and new artist at the time, Adam Kubert, about their collaboration in this era of Bone Claw Wolverine. You know, he just had his adamantium removed, and on the cover, it, it looks like Adam Kubert kind of drew him, like, maybe the claws have a little bit of grit to them, so maybe they're supposed to be the Bone Claws, they're not as shiny. It's kind of interesting, but he admits a Cubert that is unfortunate that he joined the book at this time. He says, quote, Sometimes I miss the fact that I haven't had a chance to draw him with his mask on yet. But uh, Hama assures everyone that although he doesn't know when it will happen, Wolverine is destined to get his adamantium back and rejoin the X-Men in costume. Hama also mentions a quote, I was quoted in Wizard once as saying something about rejecting a whole bunch of stuff that Barry Wizard Smith did in the Weapon X story. I don't know if I was quoted correctly on that. <laughs> then he goes on to clarify his position on including previous continuity in his stories and what he's going to pick and choose, whatever. But it's just interesting to me that comics pros were definitely reading or at least being made aware of how they were presented at Wizard. So I don't know if it's at cons, you know, or signings at stores and the fans are coming up and be like, why'd you say that? Or they're really reading it every month just because Wizard was the source. They were probably reading it every month. I mean, like, why wouldn't you? They were probably getting it free. It was just sitting there. You needed something for the bathroom. They were reading it. Yeah, it's not this era. Where else were you getting your name in print, right? So take it where you could get it. Now, it's interesting. There's also a sidebar interview with Adam and Andy Kubert about being second generation comics artists since their dad is Joe Kubert. Uh, it's worth mentioning that they were both in their 30s at this point. So they're not quite young hotshots like Rob Liefeld or Jay Lee. You know, they both attended their dad's comic book art school after college while in their 20s, but both had been lettering comics professionally since they were teenagers which I found interesting. They're, they're very open about the fact that, yeah, because of who our dad was, we had connections, which is nice. Oh, we didn't. Try, we were trying to make it on our own steam. They don't have any of that stuff. But the brothers worked together on Batman vs. Predator, Dark Horse and DC collaboration in 91, while Father Joe and Andy collaborated on some fairly recent, at that time, Ghostwriter stories. But they explained that they mostly work separately on different projects. They're not exclusively a, a Kubert family production. Uh, but I'm curious for you, you guys, when you hear, you know, whether it's Joe or Adam or Andy, is there particular work from them that you notice or remember? I'm just glad going to the Cubert school worked out for somebody. Because everybody I know who went to that school didn't work out for them so much. But um, I can't tell them apart. It's been like 25 years. Tell me there's a Cubert on a book. I still don't know Andy from Adam. I know one of them did the origin stuff with Wolverine. So that's kind of interesting. 
interesting to me because we're talking about Wolverine here and then later on when you get to like the groundbreaking origin miniseries the Cuberts are involved in that too but yeah I don't know which one is which pulling out my trade right here let me see which <laughs> Cubert it was I think it's Andy probably right we're checking yep Andy Cubert good work see I mean I, I agree I can't tell you who did what book I just know either of them are on a book the art's at least going to be quality for it Joe Cubert for anything he's just a legend so you just give him that legendary status for it and put him up on a pedestal Adam I think what I really like from him that I remember was when it still mattered the ultimate line because he did ultimate x-men he did ultimate fantastic four before the whole ultimate universe got really out of control and out of hand and it's probably a good thing they ended it when they did andy cooper now there's so much that he's done origin you know as we mentioned before a lot of others but the funny thing is where i first discovered him was semper fi when marvel had a, a military marines comic series for a bit what yep the nam was a very adult oriented one right i remember that and very mature but they had semper fi which was not as adult but still mature and had nothing to do with marvel universe at all it was just straight up war comic did larry hama write that I don't think so, but I don't know. <laughs> Seems like every military comic, it was Larry Hama. All right. Well, and to go back to that, too, like Larry Hama did more to promote that Wolverine comic than anything I've ever seen. Like, I'm curious about it now, many years later. Like, he made this book sound fantastic here. Yeah, I mean, it, it definitely was a, a still a big seller during this time. It's not like he ruined it by not paying attention to continuity, you know? No, and we all love him for G.I. Joe and all the work that he did there, too. So I'm just super curious thinking you know this might be worth looking for in the back issue bins here he did a great job selling it and honestly he says more in this than cooper does well he's obviously the one telling the stories and he's teasing a lot of upcoming storylines and how it's gonna go but everything except how the adamantium is coming back you know so <laughs> definitely building this mystery while giving you a, a little bit to chew on but you know we had a little damage control earlier hopefully we can keep it under control as we start talking about the next article <laughs> Yes, this is the first official coverage of the trend of comics starring well-endowed, scantily clad heroines selling huge numbers of books. And this is something where they've been teasing it in the top ten lists for the last few issues, as she and Vampirella and Lady Death all showed up there. And now they're just like full force. You know, the opening is bad girls with Vampirella leaning seductively on those letters, okay? <laughs> So it's mentioned here in this article that there was a stigma initially among retailers associated with female-led titles not selling. So they underordered books like Vengeance of Vampirella and Lady Death that suddenly became big sellers in their shop, or at least in demand from their customers. So Vampirella is mentioned as being the oldest of the bad girls, originally being published in her own magazine during the 70s by Warren Publishing. I will tell you, for those who are interested, a lot, almost all of those magazines are on archive.org. So you can go search them now if you want to find the original Vampirella stories. Hang on one minute. Need to get enough <laughs> for myself here. Bookmark. Mm -hmm. Kevin rubs his hands together. <laughs> 
But Vampirella got a resurgence when purchased by Harris Comics in the 90s, and the writer of Vampirella shares in this article that, quote, I've run into people so devoted they had the whole run of Warrens in their basement. She's a hidden cult superstar. I was <laughs> like, in their basement. Like on their coffee tables or in their <laughs> rich mahogany-smelling bookshelves, but no, in their basement. And then Lady Death by Chaos Comics, who is technically a villain advocating the death of mankind through her love-struck lackey, Evil Ernie, and she cited as, the, as a major up-and-comer, even getting her own wizard half-comic offer in this issue, the subject of the poster that is included with this issue which is nice that ain't bad and i will tell you so i have the lady death half comic but also i was i got a chance as i was passing through uh, the other day doing some travel stopped at a comic shop picked up some issues of vengeance of vampirella and i gotta say lady death i guess more dynamic more fun to read than vengeance of vampirella although i have a few more issues to dig into but that was kind of my take now i'm curious for you guys the next one here she by william or eventually they started calling him Billy Tucci, is the new, quote, lady killer to gain success. And Tucci, who was previously a fashion designer, states that, quote, everybody was saying girl books don't sell. I had a lot of faith in the character. There was no way I wasn't going to do it. It took off way more than I expected. Actually, we've had some interaction with Billy Tucci on social media. Whenever we post about she on Twitter, he always, like, retweets it and he'll comment on it. Good times, man. That was great. But she, to me, was always just a wall book. Every comic store I walked into, it was on the wall. I never saw it on the racks. Did you guys ever read She? I have some, because I used to know Billy Tucci. And like, and But I never read them, because you'd see him at a show, and he'd be like, oh, well, this is the latest series, but I've only got, like, two, four, and five. And then this is, <laughs> this is like, it's, he had stuff for signing, but never anything to actually get into the character with. So She is one of those things of like i don't know a complete story arc about it i don't i couldn't tell you her progression i learned more about she from this interview this article than i ever did anywhere else <laughs> now kevin where do you fall here i mean because we, we got vampirella we got lady death we have you know obviously here with she we've been discussing you know mantra from malibu's ultraverse and lady rawhide from tops comics there she was coming off of the zorro book but i know you have a bad girl on your bookshelf display that maybe isn't mentioned here yet she hadn't risen to popularity who might that be she still hasn't risen to popularity but (laughs) damn if i don't buy a variant cover from the dude nearly every week but that's joseph michael listener's dawn oh yeah so much mascara (laughs) so i have thoughts but i i know that do you want me to wait until we mentioned uh, surveys and stuff here as well. Yeah, let, let, let's get into okay. that then. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah, so just moving on here. Also, they mentioned that Jim Ballant's voluptuous take on Catwoman was a, you know, a source of controversy. When asked about her perspective as a woman on the bad girl trend, his former collaborator, Joe Duffy, says, quote, I think it's so incredibly fantastic. I've always loved characters like Sue Storm, who's such a good mommy, but I've always hated that that's all we really got. And we can never do bad girls as part protagonists i think rotten women are a lot more vicious than rotten men they're sneakier and most of them have a lot more imagination and better clothes they should just go on and be part of the whole gang the way they always should
should have been. So it's a very interesting perspective from Joe Duffy. And I don't know if you guys have seen the Marvel 616 documentaries, but she gets interviewed in one of those about, you know, women and comics and all that. She's a hoot. She's a lot of fun. I would say she probably would have been raked over the coals for that whole, like, oh. sneakier thing. Yeah, like, now, for sure. <laughs> but I just wanted to say, out of all these books, Mantra sounded the most interesting to me because apparently it's a man trapped in a woman's body. Yeah. And I was like, I was like, I want to know more about this character. Well, what's interesting is, you know, you mentioned Stephen and Michael earlier, their aversion to many of these comics, I quote, make them read. But <laughs> Mantra was one of the ones they actually thought was good because of that twist. And it was it was an interesting take and everything. So surprisingly, they, you know, they will not stand for anything else in the Ultraverse, but Mantra gets a thumbs up. There was stuff in the Mantra comics where it's, you know, the man's thought balloons, thought bubbles and all in Mantra's body that we're seeing. And you'd go up against a villain commenting on Mantra's body, on Mantra's strength, because he's assuming this is a woman in front of him. I'm trying very hard here. (laughs) (laughs) You're doing great, doing great. But a villain assuming certain things, saying certain things, and the man who is possessing Mantra's body reacting in a way of like, I can't believe you'd say such a thing to me. Like being very upset and then, oh, wait, this is kind of what a woman would go through every day of my life. And then he is changing his own thoughts and attitudes as well. It's very interesting. And honestly, I think way ahead of its time, too. Yeah, super progressive. But how progressive were Bad Girl Comics? So as part of this article, Wizard conducted a survey that they admit was kind of limited, but they, they surveyed people in the pop culture public at record stores and bookstores and comic stores to gauge reactions and they said most women observed that these images were quote sexist and exploitative one woman described them as quote strong independent bimbos with anti-gravity bodies (laughs) Uh, now women responded most favorably to thorn from jeff smith's bone comics who is not physically objectified as she's portrayed in the comics often she actually has like a cloak on or something you know so it's literally just about the character and then in the category of most interesting character zephyr aka faith from harbinger who is the the overweight fangirl character was the lowest rated with one percent okay of being most interesting while vampirella got 53 percent of that pie chart and of all the characters listed to me zephyr is the most interesting because she can relate to you she's the cool girl who's gonna get what you get you know and like literally most interesting for me to just stare at i guess is what these people being surveyed thought about but but let's get into this guys during this period what was your interaction with and observation of the bad girl trend what did you think of this survey how would you have responded at the time let's let's get into it and uh you know get ourselves in some trouble looking back on this era people forget that like comics weren't always inclusive like we live in a time now where you've got like cons and cosplay and everyone's involved and like women like the subject matter and the franchises it wasn't always like that it was like there were shops that i would get the stink eye going into you know so it's like looking at what the industry used to be i'm kind of surprised bad girl book had a stigma against them i i looking at them i feel like of course they're gonna sell are people gonna read them that's another question (laughs) i think those dudes would buy them though and have them in their basement with the rest of their vampire books you know (laughs) 
I see them as high sellers. I just don't know if they were quality storytelling. Yeah, I mean, for me, I could never know because they were always, yeah, up on the top shelf. So you couldn't reach them if you were a kid you know, <laughs> or you had to ask for help from the shop owner and you were too embarrassed to do that. Personally, for me, even though we were in, the, you know, the Baywatch era, you know, women were very objectified on TV and, uh, you know, everything like that. Like, it didn't appeal to me because I wanted a good story. That's what I was reading for. And I immediately saw the covers and said, rightly or wrong, this is not going to be a good story. So there's no no point in me reading this, let alone the fact that I would get the stink eye from my mom, you know, so it's not like, <laughs> it's not like I can walk into the house with that. So to me, it was just like, it was total, a total turnoff where it should have been a turn on. And so the publishers thought, but I was just like, mm, I'm not going to read this. Right. And plus these, these in the article were the tame ones they could mention. They don't even get into the ones like Razor and like all the, uh, like the real bad girl books that were up on the shelf <laughs> that you couldn't really get to. Yeah. Or like M-Force. Yes, or, or even Jim Ballant, who they talk about here with Catwoman. He later goes on to do like Tarot, Curse of the Black Rose or something Still like that. Still doing it. You're still doing it. I have like a Christmas mug that I can't use because <laughs> one. I feel like this was when it was first starting, so okay, it's a nice primer, but they really just dip their toe into the bad girl thing because it will get progressively badder. Yeah, this is definitely a tamer era of it, for sure. What about you, Kevin? So I didn't get a lot of this at the time because here's my money for comics. I want to get the comics I'm going to enjoy. This would be something if there was money left over. I want to get, you know, my new Warriors. And I still was getting way more image than I should have been at this point. But it's the lesson of image. It's I need something that's more than just a pretty cover and some flashy art. I need a story here, too. And I think a lot of the bad girl stuff at the time covers beautiful. Maybe the interior art is as well. A lot of times it wasn't. A lot of times it was a very pretty cover. Look years later at Zine Scope, which had beautiful covers and the art inside was crap for a long time. They're better oh, now. Mike, yeah, Michael would be upset with you, but I guess he's buying the current stuff where they've picked yeah, up current, in quality. Different story. When they started, here's a flashy cover to lure you in, and then we're going to drop the ball. It's not even flashy. It's like, here's Red Riding Hood, who's a suicide girl. <laughs> you shut your mouth about suicide. <laughs> but you, what gets me is, it took you this long. It took you this long to go from, oh, hey, we have all these image guys and people there following in their footsteps, making real flashy, cool covers, and crazy imagery and angles and stuff like that what if we did that with all pretty girls oh look we're making money dude this is a male dominated hobby in the 90s it took you that long to figure out sex sells <laughs> seriously there shouldn't be an article on here's the bad girl era it should be here's the most recent one this should have been happening all along now maybe it's because of comics code you know certain things comics are for kids biff bam pow certain things like that that prevented them from doing so until this 90s extreme era but i mean geez wonder woman starts out as a bondage fantasy like it's mm -hmm. been there from day one yeah i say this as someone who has a list of mostly dynamite i'll admit oh here are pretty covers here i want these covers the most expensive comic i've bought was a spider gwen variant cover because it was just pretty so i can't judge for people saying oh the girl on this cover looks pretty damn the story i'm gonna buy it 
because I do it too. But yeah, I mean, it's there's definitely there's always that push and pull, right? But yeah, it's just a, it, it kind of comes down to where we're at now, and this is going to be an ongoing conversation for many, many issues, I'm sure. But if it's that, it's it's just that conversation of yeah, at this time in this era, it was acceptable, and it, it's kind of nice to see how far we've come overall. That I would say, just like you know, the inclusive nature of the community of comics in general, like William was talking about, where there really is a character for everybody now, and they don't cater to one viewpoint or one, you know, orientation or anything, you know, it really is a a thing where everybody can see themselves in comics now, where it wasn't that way before, or if you saw a version of yourself, it might not be a very flattering one, you know, type thing, where I think there's a, you know, body image and everything else, like, is changed significantly. But speaking of that, though, going from bad girls to good girls. The next article is generating excitement focused on the overnight sensation that is Gen 13 from Jim Lee's Wildstorm Studios through the eyes of the 21-year-old series artist J. Scott Campbell and writer Brandon Choi. So, of course, Wizard mentions the delay of the book's release when it was solicited originally in 1993 as Gen X. The orders were 500,000, but by the time it came out in 94, the glut of new product that had come out throughout that previous year had burned out a lot of retailers so the orders dropped to 170,000 and this made the early issues instant collectibles when these hordes of customers came in droves you know just asking for this book upon its release and they hadn't you know ordered enough to keep it in stock so Campbell mentions that the first issue has no costumes very little action and mostly talking so he thought it might bomb while he was finishing it but he states quote I'm still shocked when I go to conventions and see the first issue go for 25 or 30 dollars and it's only five months old it's wacky regarding why the book is different from other image books he adds i've always talked to jim about how i like to see the fun angle there's nothing wrong with big guns and evil organizations but i wanted things the way they were in my comics when i grew up too many comics nowadays have the world ending every month we're not going to make it stupid but there'll be a more of a whimsical attitude less gore and violence so yeah jet 13 definitely a turnaround right like there still was ultimately like a cheesecake factor in Gen 13 but it was a fun comic and when we talk about like comics you wanted to read right but it also puts into the spotlight you know their main character that they wanted you to identify with is female they say Caitlin Fairchild the writer actually highlights her as being a risk in her role as a female team leader, which is weird because Storm had done that in the X-Men years before, uh, but also because she doesn't have a code name. Like, that was a big deal. She has no code name! I know Wizard harped on Jean Grey a lot also for not having a new code name. But Campbell says, quote, It's stupid in this day and age not to have women more prominent in comics. And it's also mentioned that Generation X at Marvel may be competition, but Choi then responds that, quote, It was ever our intention to beat Marvel to the punch. In fact, Jim first thought about doing this project nearly two years ago. Campbell clarifies, quote, Marvel's book seems to be a lot more serious and dark and far less comical and zany than ours. And finally, it's mentioned that they are planning to start an ongoing series that will be a departure from the tone of the original miniseries, but it won't be 
out for like three months because of the new image policy to have three issues completed before you could even solicit a book. So, William, ever since your first appearance, you and I have been waiting to talk about Gen 13 together. We've been messaging on Twitter when Gen 13 news comes up and I'm getting excited. So... Let me ask you, and Kevin, we're going to get into you too, but, but well, how did you first encounter Gen 13? Okay. <laughs> I first found Gen 13 number 14 on stands, and it was just the cover that struck me. It is just free fall in like... It's kind of like an overall skirt situation carrying books like she was going to school. Right. And I was like, oh, that's, a, that's an interesting cover. And I read that and it was kind of cool because like the series, like they say, is like them getting started, getting used to their powers, that sort of thing. So it was like her in school, but she's like the new girl and that kind of deal. And then I just started like trying to collect everything I could. There was number 13 instead of being like one issue for like two nine. Is 13A, 13B, and 13C, and they were each a dollar thirty. Right. And, like, they had cameos from, like, all these indie stars. Looking back, it's not a real, like, cohesive story, but it's a nice, like, showcase of image, basically, and, like, even some not-image characters. But I loved the whole, like, concept. I liked the wit behind it. Like, I liked Freefall. I liked Fairchild as the leader. Like, it was it was interesting to watch her, Ron Funches calls it, relearn her body, because she was, like a meek little girl before the experiment. Like, she's just a tiny, mousy little thing, and then she becomes this, like, statuesque powerhouse, and she doesn't know how to, like, handle that. Like, how how to carry that weight basically so it's interesting to see her kind of develop grunge as much as he is of his time he was a funny character back then you know yeah so i became a completist that was the first series where i was buying like variant covers for like 20 bucks which was a lot in like 1996 yeah um i i was getting like the half and the zine and like all the mini series and i was a completist it's funny because in the article they're like yeah we've got probably like 20 issues a story and that's basically what they had like campbell leaves the book at like 25 when they're in space and then it kind of becomes a whole different thing like they moved to new york and they kind of want to be the x-men and it just like i still kind of checked in here and there but it's those first 25 issues that like are really gen 13 when i think about it yeah, like you say, it, it, they mentioned it here, it was always a wall book. Like, it was, from the moment it came out, you would always see Gen 13, especially the number one covers all behind the register every time you came into a comic shop. And I recently bought the portfolio of all the covers, and I have to say, I had them up on my wall for a couple weeks, and then my uh, my kids came into my office. I put them behind my office door. You know, just just that, that'll be for me. When, you know, remember the good old days. You know, the comics I could never have, and my my kids saw the cover that's the parody of the Janet Jackson Rolling <laughs> Stone Jackson, cover, and then the Victoria's <laughs> Secret cover, right? And then the like I I remember all thirteen of them. <laughs> and so and so I was out mowing the lawn. I come back in and and they said we told on you, and I'm like what? And so like and they, I had to take them down, unfortunately. And my wife's just like yeah, you can't have those. I'm like oh man. So oh, but I was yeah. like I, it's pop culture parody. That's all it was to me. I remember that. They 
an original Rolling Stone cover on stands. You know, anyway, so it's just, it, it was one of those things where it can be a controversial book in that way, but if you read it, if anybody read that book, it was. It was just the characters, the attitude, it was so fun. But Kevin, what is your relationship with Gen 13? So I got it when it came out, of course, because here's a hot new image comic that actually looks good. It was the first time I debated spending like real money on a variant cover. They were heavily featured on QVC once when QVC would have like a comic show about once a month, I think. And it was the American Entertainment exclusive cover, which is Fairchild in a maid outfit. And she's like six feet of legs and one feet of torso. Yes. On the cover. Jay's got a cable dress, pretty girl. We can't deny that. Still, this variant covers to this day. I loved Danger Girl when he did that, which lasted an even shorter amount of time than (laughs) Gen 13 lasted. He draws a pretty girl. One girl. The same girl. (laughs) Yes. He changes her hair. And that's, we'll get into that when you're done, because my relationship with this comic <laughs> has changed. <laughs> All, right. All right. But I felt like Gen 13 was trying to be everything except for what it should have been. Let's be Wildcats Jr. Let's be the X-Men. Let's be this. Let's be that. No, you should have been Teen Titans and just embrace that you are images version of Teen Titans. Embrace it and go from there. And I say this as someone who I've never been quiet about it. I love New Warriors. That was my favorite thing growing up. And the more I collect, the more I get in stuff. I'm also getting Teen Titans. There's just something I like for here's young superheroes making mistakes in their heroics and their love lives and their personal lives and everything. And through these mistakes, they're going to become better. That's a classic storyline. And it seemed like Gen 13 got, every time they got close to it, they would be like, no, we can't do this. We have to zig or zag in the other direction. And it maybe if they embraced what they were destined to be, we would have gotten more than 25 issues out of it. And what kills me is DC, buying all the Wildstorm properties now, still won't do that. Throw Gen 13 into Teen Titans. Or even just Fairchild. No, we'll have a randomly team up with Superboy, and then that's it. Nah, I'm I'm doing the Shannon Sharp nodding meme right now. (laughs) I feel that Gen 13 is so 90s. Like, I mean, there's a character named Grunge and Burnout. Like, it's so 90s. It's been tried. I mean, even the savior of the franchise, the way The Rock used to save film franchises, Gail Simone is supposed to turn anything she touches into gold. Gail Simone couldn't fix Gen 13. It had its time and its place, but it, it can't be done. Yeah, it's a hundred percent of its time in a major way. I mean, even to like, you know, like the Gen 13 rave comic, which was like this little like promotional fancy. And I, I remember I had that back in the day. I loved it. You know, that they did an actual Gen 13 zine, like all that yep. kind of stuff. And it's so like, it just looks like MTV in print. You know, you just look at it yep. and you're like, wow. And it's no wonder that, you know, their editor went on to be a, a cast member on the real world. You know, Sarah was on there. I mean, it was just one of those things where you're just like, wow, like it's just, yeah, like you go back. It's a time capsule. It is so like silly and fun, and the superheroics always feel very low, like on their list of priorities. And what I enjoyed also was the fact that they did so many Gen 13 bootleg issues. 
yes. where they would where they would have like these adventures with different artists and team up with different characters and then they do like Gen 13 Max or they did Gen 13 Generation X which was arguably not that great but I think they did yeah. it twice and what didn't yeah. turn out that great but but yes but they they were characters that everybody seemed to want to draw and use in that era and then yeah like once you get to like the late 90s that was it like they tried rebooting him and he just like no because th- didn't Chris Claremont even try to do a version of Gen 13 he, he did with like newer characters oh. just using the name we got about a hundred issues of the whole thing but the the era that matters is the first 25 like nobody talks about I mean Warren Ellis did an annual for them we got some Garth Ennis like everybody who shouldn't have touched it touched it but, <laughs> It, it, they didn't make anything memorable with it. But my yeah. whole thing is like, it sucks because I loved this series. I had this issue of Wizard that we're going through. I cut out those pages. I made like posters of the stuff. Like, I loved those characters. And when it comes down to it, a lot of that was J. Scott Campbell. Well, J. Scott Campbell and I are enemies these days. <laughs> <laughs> he has blocked me on Twitter. Oh, no. And, like, mainly because I pointed out, and not to him because I'm not a jerk, I was just saying in casual conversation, his style has not evolved in 25 years because it has not like danger girl looks like it could have been a gen 13 spinoff all of his variant covers that he does for marvel now look like danger girl abby chase is just fairchild with blonde hair he draws a cute girl but he only draws her he doesn't even draw like free fall anymore we've seen he could do that kind of stature he could do that kind of look but no everybody he draws is caitlin fairchild or Abby Chase. And it's just disappointing because there's no growth there. And I mean, don't knock it. He's getting paid. He's doing his work covers. But like, it's just an offhand remark. Like, hey, like you haven't really switched up anything here. I mean, even in this issue, they talked to Jim Lee about his sabbatical and how he's going to like change up his style during that time. And he kind of does. But Campbell's had 25 years and he's actually gotten kind of worse. (laughs) He has regressed. So now I've got this thing I love by this guy who hates me (laughs) because he's tried to like, he does that thing where he like quote tweets you and then like sends it out to his people so they can like, he's throwing meat to the wolves. (laughs) So even though I'm blocked, he will still name search himself to like, I just can't see his tweets. So he still does it. And I'm just like, you're kind of petty. And then he did that thing recently where somebody like fixed his art, which was kind of like condescending. Like they didn't need to do that. But then again, he put them on blast and threw them to the wolves. Like, oh, here you are fixing my art. Ha ha ha. You think you're so funny. But they actually had a lot of points because his art is kind of bad these days in certain ways told you in the intro that william bruce west is known for being controversial in his online takes and here is the proof (laughs) so 
I was like, I love Gen 13. I loved Danger Girl. I loved Wildsiders. Wildsiders was a book he released a zero issue of and never came back to it. And that kind of started his dislike of me because I used to ask him on Twitter, what happened to Wildsiders? And he didn't want to give a straight answer. Not that he <laughs> owes me anything, but it's like, don't be evasive. Just be like, oh, the business, the, the, the market didn't sustain it or couldn't support it or something like that. But that was the seed. And then later on, he found that like, I don't like his modern day art. And now we are not friends. <laughs> wow, this is a new can of worms here. We had Liefeld after us and after this. Oh, J. Scott Campbell may be blocking us too. But speaking of many books that maybe had a little bit more substance, but maybe didn't get the attention they deserved in their time, if it ain't broke, fix it, is an interview with the creators of the Milestone imprint, Dwayne McDuffie, Dennis Cowan, and Derek T. Dingle, about the state of their line of ethnically diverse superheroes, which are still struggling to find a wider audience, though they are planning to expand their reach with, this is crazy, a kid's magazine from the same group that publishes Batman Superman magazine. I just think it's interesting that when you look at the subject matter of a lot of the Milestone books, I was like, how's that going to translate to a kid's magazine? But regarding the slow growth, Cowan says that retailers, quote, are resistant to anything they perceive as different. If you do cookie-cutter versions of the same things, they snatch them up because they understand them. Dennis Cowan mentions that, quote, our perfect shipping record has been ignored by the media. But the crew then goes on to say that when they can reach retailers on an individual basis, those store owners become their biggest supporters and recommend the books to their customers. So uh, Dingle also points out to the focus being too much on the multicultural angle of their creators and their characters, which makes potential readers assume they won't be able to relate to stories, you know, even though they're actually universal themes in there. Cowan mentions that, quote, there is this misconception that Milestone hires only minority talent and blacks. Some pros say it to me is a bad joke, like, I can't work for you because I'm white. At this point, it's a real drag. They also mentioned that DC doesn't require them to have the Comics Code Authority seal before they'll ship the books, which is good because, as we mentioned, you know, they, they deal with issues of racial prejudice and sexual prejudice and economic inequality and, and more stuff in these books. I mean, it's, it's heavy sometimes, which could be why, like, it didn't appeal to the average teenage comic book reader. Although, uh, McDuffie says, quote, maturity varies by person, not by age. But I think, personally, for me, you have to take into account that comics, for a lot of people, they want it to be fun. And it seems like, by and large, the milestone comics are maybe too high-minded for the average reader. Because, I mean, Dwayne McDuffie was a brilliant dude. And the way that he at least expressed himself, it seemed that way. That he was always kind of a couple steps above uh, the readers of his books. And maybe it didn't appeal as much. But I'm curious for you guys, whether this era uh, that the milestone was just beginning, or this resurgence now as it's making its way but what are your thoughts on milestone characters and comics i feel like when they launched they leaned too heavily into the minority centric thing and then it bit them in the butt and this article is kind of damage control of like hey we're more than that because i remember when they came out it was almost like fubu for comics these are like black comics like you need to get these like i had a very afrocentric cousin who used to send me issues of hardware who's basically just black iron man like when you really get down to it like weapons dealer has suit of armor but i think they felt there was an audience there that didn't come out for them so then this article is 
like, hey, like, we've got these great things going, and hey, we're not just a multicultural thing, like, we've got something for everyone. And it's amazing to look at their alumni, like, people who came out of there, like, wow, they did milestone books, especially in this article, just a lot of the people that were mentioned. But by this point, it was already too late. And there's there were certain parts of the article that sort of, like, pulled at the heartstrings, and they're like, no, DC's not just a business partner, they're family. And I'm like, that's yeah. I used to work with Michael Davis, who's mentioned here. He was their former, like, director of talent acquisition. And the article mentions that, like, he leaves to work for Motown Animation. What that yielded, I cannot tell you, because I don't know any Motown animated properties that ever came out. But, like, I worked with him when I was at Diamond on something called The Guardian Line. They were religious comics that sold well if you sold them in churches and Christian bookstores and that kind of thing, but did not sell well to the general public because they were tinged with like, oh, this is faith-based. So they tried that same 180 of like, hey, no, these are just good superhero comics. They just happened to have a message, but it was too late. It is like he used the same blueprint from Milestone that he used for the Guardian line. I just find that interesting because a lot of what I read in this article about some of these series, I would like to see where they ended up. And then some of them, I'm just like, what the hell are they talking about? Like there's Fade, the homosexual ghost who's going to fade away eventually, <laughs> and but he's got to make right with his family before he does. And I was like, well, that's kind of powerful. I'd read that. But then there's like Shadow Cabinet. Where I don't know what the hell that book's about. <laughs> Yeah, that, that one's confusing. I've read an issue or two, and I'm like, huh? <laughs> so they don't seem accessible. So it's like, it's great they have this on-time track record and that, like, retailers came around to them. But honestly, it was the wrong era. And I know they've tried many times over the years, and there's bad blood because certain people have been left out of, like, revamps and reboots and whatnot. But, like, I think they would have a much better time doing it now than they did then. Because, like, we go back to what I was saying earlier stores were not inclusive back then the stores did not want black books that weren't Blade and they didn't even want Blade you know Blade has never had a series to last more than 11 issues <laughs> so it's like and that's that's the golden child of Marvel Cinema before the MCU so it just comes down to like the audience did not come out I'm not gonna say they didn't exist but they did not come out for the books at the time and it was to their detriment like they did a creative refresh but it was too late Sorry, I ran No, no, no. <laughs> oh, no, I, I knew this was coming. I, I saw something in the notes, and I was like, well, I know Will and I have talked about this before privately, so I'm going to just let him go. <laughs> um, all right, so you mentioned how a lot of comic stores were inclusive, and unfortunately, many still aren't. I think progress has been made overall, but we do still have certain attitudes of, you know, it's only superhero comics, and it's only, you know, your white straight males, which is ridiculous. Comics is a medium to tell stories. There should be a story for everyone. Anyone who could possibly come in the door should be able to find a comic for them. Like if you go into a bookstore or a movie store or a music store, there's a variety of things here. You can find one that works for you. But we do still have a lot of comic stores that are just, here's the superhero comics and nothing else. Nothing from Scholastic, from Fantagraphics, from anyone other than superheroes. That's a shame. Milestone superheroes. 
whatever else they are, they're also superheroes. I think looking at this and seeing some of the things that have happened along the way here, I feel like they made two mistakes. One, I think the partnership with DC never did them any favors other than some people made money off a static shock, which is the only one of the DC animated series that still hasn't gotten a DVD or Blu-ray release. Last I checked. Interesting. So why limit yourself to comic stores? You were producing something for an audience that, as Will said, is not welcome in some comic stores. Then why go to comic stores? Put it in the clothing stores. Put it somewhere else. Instead of waiting for the audience to come to you, to a comic store, bring these comics to where the audience already is. And like was mentioned with the Christian books there, they weren't sold in comic stores, and they still sold well. Diary of a Wimpy Kid is a comic. I haven't seen it in my local comic store, ever. That's not a knock against them. It's just not there. Catman. Like, there's all sorts of these kids' comics that are not in comic stores. They're in bookstores. The number one selling comics is not what Diamond says the number one selling comics are. It's what the bookstores sell. So why not take these milestone ones, put them somewhere else, bring them to a new audience, still offer them comic stores? Sure, hey, you can order these in Diamond. Don't worry about it if you've got people interested. But we know we're going to sell more over here than we ever will in your store. Also, side note, I get upset every time I see Dwayne McDuffie in an interview because of him dying so damn young. Talk about a guy who left the comic business a better place than he found it and could have done so much more. Oh, totally. Totally. Just to wrap up here, there is an an interview with a guy named Tim Truman, an artist who had worked on a lot of stuff, and they call it a long, strange trip, because you talked about somebody attending the Joe Kubert Art School there, Will, and he was (laughs) one of them, and he went on to work in some books, and he actually was part of the 1989 uh, Hawkworld miniseries that was a reboot that kind of convoluted the character's origins. We actually talk about that in our Zero Hour special. He's doing a Lone Ranger and Tonto book, which I don't think we need to get any so i feel like instead we should go check out our heroes in motion i have the music in my head already long time listeners to show all right so we got some fun stuff going on here today in the Heroes in Motion updates for animated and live action features featuring your favorite superheroes. Oh, Rob's here again. Hi, Rob. Welcome. We'll try to not say anything bad. Oh, no, he already blocked Wizards. He hasn't blocked me. Just a matter of time. Yeah, probably. This saga of Rob Liefeld's Youngblood animated series continues as Roustabout, the animation studio that Liefeld originally hired to make the promo reels, are now suing him for canceling the deal with CBS, stating that... Roused about we're given half the rights to the Youngblood cartoon and Liefeld can't do anything without its say-so and are suing Extreme Studios for damages. Liefeld claims he is now working with the studio who produced the Wildcats cartoon for Jim Lee and, quote from Rob, now the whole project is over at Fox. Sadly, Youngblood never joins the Fox Kid Network or any network for that matter. Have either of you seen the promo reel? Because it's on YouTube. Yes, it is okay. It's okay. (laughs) It looks cheap 30 years later. Yeah. For the time, and when Wildcats came out, I would have been fine with it. I don't think we lost out on a whole lot, just like nobody looks at Youngblood and says, remember how great that, remember that one Youngblood issue? That was so cool. Like, there's nothing there. If he had done it like 
Todd did and did it on HBO and did it R-rated the way that his comics essentially wanted to be, I think it would have been fine. But to try to push it as a Saturday morning thing, that just wasn't where it belonged. That's where all his problems were. Everything Rob designs looks derivative. Mm -hmm. You know how, like, you'll come out with, like, Avengers Endgame and then, like, Walmart will come out with, like, Revengers Final Game DVD that's, like, (laughs) Crazy Grandma. Like, that's the way his designs are. It's like, Badrock is just, like, smooth gray thing. You know, like you look at his characters and you're just sort of like, I know what this started out as. And you just zigged when you should have zagged and you called it an original character. So no, we didn't miss out on anything. Well, I mean, how many times do you look at a Liefeld drawing and you think it's one person then realize it's someone else? Yes, he does have a style. That is for sure. I mean, he always claims he's like, hey, I could draw an illustrative style with correct proportions. But essentially, he's saying you wouldn't know it's me. I have a definitive style that people can recognize. That's why I draw that way. It's a choice. It's like seeing a Hulk Hogan match from Japan. He actually wrestles. You're like, what the hell? Why are you doing that? Why don't you do that here? He says, I don't have to do it here. <laughs> All right. Fair enough. Um, But I'm curious here, and I didn't look into it. I wonder how this lawsuit settled itself, because if Ross about owned half of Youngblood, then what does uh, old Terrific Entertainment there, or whatever the hell they were that screwed over Rob last year for all the rights have? Yeah, it's interesting, right? Yeah, so we're there's continued reports in the next issue, so this is an ongoing story, so more to be reported soon enough. Well, I'll have to subscribe to this wonderful podcast, Adam, through either the Retro Network or Transistor. Sounds like a great idea! <laughs> okay, as a follow-up to the news last issue of Val Kilmer being cast as Bruce Wayne in Batman Forever that apparently caused Renee Russo to be dropped as the love interest due to the age difference. I mean, geez, we can't have an older woman with a younger guy. That'd be ridiculous. Almost as ridiculous as any movie or TV show with an older man and a younger woman. That's not going to happen. No. <laughs> so now Nicole Kidman will play the role. Oh my gosh, I remember that. Oh, Jesus, just what got me in theater to see Batman Forever. Sandra Bullock, Linda Hamilton, and model L. McPherson were all considered. However, L. McPherson does go on to play Bruce Wayne's girlfriend in Batman and Robin. They liked L. Wasn't Linda Hamilton older than Val Kilmer? I was thinking that same thing. She was buffer than him at that point, that's for sure. For sure. Because this is, what, two years after T2 with her freaking iconic arms? Yeah. I don't know about this one. I've never heard of anyone watching this movie or being a fan of the toy line, but I'll, <laughs> I'll read about it here just in case. A premiere party for Alec Baldwin's film, The Shadow, was co-sponsored by Tops and Dark Horse Comics at Club Zai. Zay? Don't worry, it doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> oh, okay. You, you, did, you did your footwork in your area for me? Yeah, yeah no, this is gone. <laughs> A hot Washington, D.C. night spot where only crew members from the movie showed up at the event, and the Tops trading cards were given away as party favors. You mean to tell me at a trading card and comic book promotion that multi-million dollar movie stars didn't show up, I, for one, am shocked. Hard to believe. It really is. And I didn't know this happened. You know, I, I do so much research about The Shadow. I have so many magazines from the era, and I had never read it until researching for this episode, finding out there was an event of some sort. Because, yeah, Alec Baldwin, not involved, uh, not really involved, did, did a little bit of press, and then it was over with, you know? It, it came and went so quickly, I luckily caught it in theaters, you know? Luckily. <laughs> for some I- 
of us, it's luckily. I, I will say, based on uh, everything that you've said on previous episodes of the podcast, I do at some point have to sit down and watch it with fresh eyes and clear mind as its own thing, not as how it was treated in the 90s or perception at time. I need to watch as it's with an open mind. It is no competitor to Batman. Just, <laughs> just don't go in expecting that, which is what they wanted you to believe. Well, maybe the later Batmans. <laughs> the Mask animated series is coming to CBS Saturday mornings, with rumors that Jim Carrey himself will reprise the role as Stanley Ipkiss, a part that eventually goes to seminal voice actor Rob Paulson, known for playing Yakko in Animaniacs and Raphael on Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. I met him at RetroCon several years back, got him to autograph a Raphael action figure, so nice guy, Rob. So you're saying this retrocon is a thing that people should go to and would enjoy? I would, I would say so. If you want to meet oh, some of the people talking at you right now, you might show up there. You might even see somebody walking around in a wizard's t-shirt. I'm curious, who really thought Jim Carrey, at, he was at like $20 million a movie at this point, was going to voice a Saturday morning cartoon? Well, I think that going into Batman Forever, that's what made him the star you know what i'm saying like ace ventura and the mask were like everybody was like huh who is this guy dumb and dumber what huh but then he was commanding the big bucks when batman forever came out or okay. you know when he when he was cast i think that's what did it yeah i remember this cartoon it wasn't that good no. so I, I i didn't watch all of it but i do remember there's also an ace ventura cartoon at the time and they did have one episode where they crossed over as awesome Jim yeah. Carrey characters very yeah. fun Okay, though not comics related, it's reported that a new Hercules series starring Kevin Sorbo is being produced by Sam Raimi, which, of course, Hercules becomes a huge success. Very popular syndicated series spawns Xena, the warrior princess. And then not only the tops line, um, but I didn't realize there was a Dark Horse line also. Yeah, later on, they that. picked it up. And Dynamite gets Xena. Oh, wow. Um. But I remember when these shows were on that I don't know what I was watching instead of it, but I remember my mom was shocked for years. She's like, how are you not watching these? If these shows are catered <laughs> to anyone, it's you. Yeah, definitely. I mean, for me, I had a Gen 13 ad from Wizard Magazine next to a photo of Lucy Lawless as Xena. Like they were on my wall together. This is another one that I do debate at some point. Maybe I would watch. I still think about it to this day. I would recommend Xena over Hercules. What do you think, Will? Yes, definitely. First off, Xena has the better, like, it aged better. But also, like, nobody hates Lucy Lawless while Kevin Sorbo dot dot dot. Disappointed! Okay. <laughs> you, you answered the question before I got to ask it. <laughs> okay, and finally... Zen the Intergalactic Ninja is reportedly in development by a European production company. The rumor that, quote, a major Hollywood director known for campy horror movies will be helming the project causes Wizard to speculate that directors such as Wes Craven or John Carpenter may in the running. I will say no. Not surprisingly, the Zen movie never gets made anyways, though, and the action figures continued to be found on discount racks for years afterwards. I do remember there's a video game that actually people enjoyed, and... Like, Zen, I think he had an Archie run for a while, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they got picked up the same era they were doing the Ninja Turtles. They started doing Zen Ninja Galactic Ninja with a very uh, environmental bent. It, it probably could have gotten a cartoon, I think. I'm surprised it didn't. Yeah, if Toxic Crusaders was a cartoon, why was no. Zen the Intergalactic Ninja not a cartoon? All right, so... 
We've talked about the cartoon for Zen, the movies that never get made, the action figures. I agreed they were part of the KB, like three for $10 for the longest time. I could probably find them in a dollar store still to this day. But if we want to talk about other action figures, I think it's time for Azriel's Action Figure Fury. The main topic of conversation in the toying around section is how to grade your action figures and determine their value. It's mentioned that most figures do not arrive in mint condition to the stores. Damage in the box is common, but ultimately it's stated that since there is no universal action figure grading system, you just have to operate on personal preference. What are your preferences or experience in collecting carded figures? Well, William, why don't you tell us, are you a carded figure kind of guy, or do you like to take them out and put them on a shelf? I am both. I keep them carded until they're ready to go on the shelf, and the reason for that is, like, lack of space and time, and I find that some of them go up in value in the time between me buying them and displaying them, so (laughs) I end up flipping them instead of keeping them. So I keep them in the package until they're ready to rock, but... Ultimately, I'm not a mint-in-box collector. Okay, yeah, that, that's an interesting philosophy. Kevin, are you on the action figure side of things? It really depends on what it is. Um, For the new All Elite Wrestling line, I have an Orange Cassidy. It's also a signed one, so taking it out of the package when it makes sense. I want to keep that out there. I've started a Becky Lynch collection. So those will probably be loose, though, because the ones I found were loose. So I'll probably just continue to collect them all that way. If I find it, you know, an old He-Man or G.I. Joe, I'm not finding that in a card. So I'll just worry about loose ones. If I find a newer one, I'll probably keep it in the package. So really, I think it just depends on is there anything special about the package, a big display, an autograph, something like that, and also how old is it? I will say, though, as much as I would go loose for an older figure, God, if I found like a USS flag in box, it's staying in the box. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent choice, sir. Yes. So, Kevin, a loose Becky Lynch, does Seth know? Damage control! Damage control! Damage control! Hang on. I don't know. Hang on. I'm I'm judging by how safe it is to say anything. I'm looking around my house right now. (laughs) I'll say this. At the time of taping, I'm hoping she is coming back soon. Money in the Bank or SummerSlam. That's my hope. All right. Well, I will say for me on the collecting side, I'm definitely more of, like, it's nostalgia collecting. I don't buy new series. I really do not like reproduction series, so I'm not into, like, the Masters of the Universe. I have, like, all four of the Ghostbusters that came out, and I did buy a Stay Puff to go with them, but that's only because my wife got them for me for my birthday. Because to me, it's like vintage or die. That's, that's really where I fall. So if I find one that I really admired as a kid at an antique store or something, then I will I will buy it and add it to my collection. But otherwise, it's kind of like I have all the original shadow figures from that line because it was possible to collect them all. It's not, you know, not terribly collectible in value. I have like the original Venom figures like up to like around, you know, 96, I would say, like, you know, going back to like Secret Wars, Black Costume Spider-Man and then tracking 
the evolution type thing. So, like, that's a display on a wall for me. But, like, ultimately, like, action figures are not something that I focus on every day. Like, I have a lot of them, but it's not anything that I'm going to go try to find an exclusive or a variant or anything like that. It's just, if it happens to catch my fancy, like, you know, NECA is not for me, except when they produce a coming out of their shells tour set, <laughs> then, then it is now my mission, and I have to call in operatives around the country because I must have it. But that goes with another larger collection, you know, of actual albums and videotapes and stuff. But grading figures to me it also upsets me because i think ultimately they are meant to be displayed or played with and it's hard for me i i don't know if you guys ever saw the raggedy ann and andy christmas special that was done by chuck jones and there's this guy who comes in with his gloop stick machine and he takes every toy and puts it in there so that it can't ever be broken or destroyed and that's what i feel like we're doing we're we're gloop sticking all these fantastic collectibles that really should be able to there should be a tactile experience with it. Hey there, gift-giving geeks! We're just taking a break to tell you about our sponsor for this episode, Fun.com. You know, Michael, Steven, and I buy each other presents all the time, and we're always looking for the most obscure and nerdy items to impress each other. Speaking from personal experience, Fun.com is a fantastic source for officially licensed pop culture clothing, toys from the likes of DC and Marvel, how about Ghostbusters or the Batman movies, plus exclusive items you just won't find anywhere else. There's actually a killer Venom t-shirt in an Eric Larson style available only at Fun.com. It's super cool. And check this out. Just for being a listener to Wizards, the podcast guide to comics on the Retro Network, you can get 10% off your next order from Fun.com through August 7th, 2021. The 10% will automatically be subtracted from your shopping cart total there on the site. Just click the link found in the show notes for this episode and the discount will be automatically applied. I've done it. I bought my daughter a Wonder Woman t-shirt, a Star Wars themed storybook for my son, and uh, maybe a few items for myself as well. So treat yourself or your geeky friends and family to the gift of fun from fun.com. And now it's time to jump into Jim and Todd's Hype Machine. Now, we reported last episode that Jim Lee had disappeared completely from the top 10 hottest artists lists, and now we may have the answer as to why. Jim Lee Takes Sabbatical is the headline where Jim reveals that he will be leaving the drawing and plotting of comics after Wildcats number 13 to fulfill a promise to his wife that he would spend more time helping out with the kids at home, especially since they have a new baby on the way. Actually, it sounds like a sitcom premise on must-see TV, don't you think, Will? Yes, it definitely does. Like a hipper version of Bob. <laughs> <laughs> I actually brought this up on our social media, and everybody chimed in about it. They're just like, yeah, oh, this is crazy, I can't believe it. But most people seem more upset that Greg Capullo was so far down on the list at this time. <laughs> they, they were not so upset that Jim Lee had disappeared entirely. <laughs> now, on to Todd News, the Toying Around section features prototype photos of McFarlane's Spawn figures, which we will post on social media for everybody to see here, but Todd is on the attack 
in his ego column, he's citing an editorial piece by Ralph Macchio, or Macchio, however you prefer to pronounce it, published in the Bullpen Bulletins in Marvel Comics, where he was touting how Marvel is continuing to dominate the market. And Todd refutes this and prints two pie charts, showing that while Marvel had a 57.1% share of the market in 1992, now, in 1994, they have only 33.62% of the market and are losing ground to DC and Image. So I was wondering, like, why was Todd so upset of Marvel tooting their own horn? Like, is he super bitter at them? I never thought that he was that bad, but maybe he just felt like he had to prove a point. He's like, yeah, we're gaining on you. It's just, it shows how the graphs and stuff can be messed with, too, because he's just showing this, but you would need more numbers for it. Both could be right. Or you could have Todd saying Marvel had 50% of the market, and now they have, I don't know, let's say 33%. Okay, that's definitely less. But if your overall market was 1 million, and they used to have 50% of 1 million, and now that market with, you know, the collector boom there going crazy is 10 million, and they have 33% of 10 million, Marvel's making more. Sure, they have less of the overall pie, but it's a bigger pie. The way Todd is interpreting it, he has an actual cartoon that he has drawn that shows Ralph Macchio doing a headstand and looking at the Marvel market share, where if you're right side up, it looks like it's going down. But to him, it looks like it's going up. The funny thing is, that particular cartoon is even copyrighted by Todd McFarlane. He's standing by it. But in this issue, Jim Lee is mentioned seven times, Todd is right there with him, also with seven mentions, which brings our total to Jim Lee, 236, Todd, 230. I I keep saying this, but like any minute now, especially with Jim Lee disappearing, going on sabbatical, it's Todd's time to shine, baby. I mean, by the time Jim gets back, it's going to be like, huh? Jim who? I think you are grossly neglecting the coverage that Wizard will have over Divine Right when that Jim Lee comic comes out. (laughs) We all remember our Divine Right shirts and everything there. All right. Speaking of those books that were burning up the charts, it's time to check on Punisher's Price Guide. Okay, so there are actually two comics in Punisher's Price Guide right now, but we're not going to talk about Team Youngblood because no one does. (laughs) Wildcats number two, however, is highlighted as a potential hot book to watch based on the fact that it contains the first appearance of Wetworks. Some backup story here. Comic originally came out in 1992. Let's see what Wizards has to say about it. So what makes Wildcats number two a choice book for Comic Watch? Is it the cutting-edge, super-spiffy holographic cover? Nope. The gotta-own-all-of-them gimmick covers fad that has gone the way of the dinosaur? Is it the coupon inside for Image Comics number zero? Uh Uh-uh. That thing expired a ways back, and the book kind of sucked anyway. (laughs) I spent way too much for that book when it was new. Now, how much did you pay for it, Kevin? Okay, I paid 40 bucks for it. Wow. Whoa. Yeah, because I wanted it so bad when it came out. So I spent that amount of money on it, which was ridiculous. But let's go back. The book shows signs of smoking because of the Wetworks backup story at the end of the ish. 
in case you don't recall, Wetworks number one was first solicited back, oh, during the Carter administration or something. <laughs> now, years after the original solicitation, Wetworks is finally out, giving people reason to care about the team's debut in this ish. As a side note, has anybody noticed the strong comeback image has managed to put together in the hot book market? Way to go, guys. Keep it up. So, okay, hot book here. That's what Wizard had to say. But now, through the miracle of time, we are going to decide if this book is a fire star, meaning it went up in value, a firestorm, meaning it stayed about the same, or a burnout, meaning it dropped significantly in value. So in September 1994, Wildcats number two was valued at a whopping and astonishing a pay-off-your-mortgage amount of $10. Wildcats 2, there was actually a newsstand cover that did not have the shiny cover on it. Oh. And I was able to find that for cover price, and it took me years to find the shiny one. I think I actually just got it in the last year or two in a dollar bin. <laughs> Did I get the deal of the century by finding it in a dollar bin, or was I overcharged? Well, as of June 2021, an ungraded copy of this Wildcast number two sells for $3.15. <laughs> but what is that in 1994 money? I know. Everybody wants oh. to talk the, the inflation and all those things. I can't do the math. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's not part of Punisher's Price Guide. Because it might have been steady. It could be. But, I mean, if somebody wants to do that online and wants to offer up your uh, calculations for Punisher's Price Guide every issue, you let us know. <laughs> all right. So this one is a burnout and we all know from earlier in the episode how much you two love burnout oh the 13 characters burnout <laughs> yes definitely the best member of the team <laughs> burnout oh he's so unnecessary he's the ringa <laughs> All right. Speaking of shiny covers, it's time to find out how other publishers are trying to get our bucks. So, William, why don't you take us into Guy Gardner's Gimmicks a Go Go? How bizarre! The Spider-Clone saga is being promoted in this issue with a confusing ad, which states, When you purchase the special polybag version of Web of Spider-Man number 119 for $6.45, you're prepaying for Spider-Man number 53, Amazing Spider-Man number 396, and Spectacular Spider-Man number 219. Included in your polybag is a free milestone edition, Spider-Man number 150, reprinting the aftermath of spider Man's first epic battle with the Spider Clone, plus a special checkoff card that guarantees your prepaid copies of the most sought-after Spider-Man saga ever. Huh? <laughs> Prepaying for three comics by buying one issue and a reprint? Bizarre marketing strategy. Have you guys ever seen anything like that? Do you do you recall this or any similar promotion from a publisher? Not only have I seen it, it was last month. What? Oh, well, tell who? us. What was this? Yes. There's a company called Bad Idea. Oh God! That Here we go. Doesn't <laughs> that doesn't <laughs> promote through previews? They have direct relationships with comic retailers, and they're only sold in 300 shops across the nation. So there are a lot of like strings attached to their books. For example, a store can only sell one copy per customer. They can't sell it for higher than cover price for the first 30 days, and 
they released, I'd say, like four series, and then all of a sudden they released this cryptic tweet, this press release saying that bad idea was over, and nobody knows what that means. Like, are they done? Like, did their whole strategy not work, or are is there some metamorphosis into some other crazy brand and gimmick? So what they did right after that announcement was they sold a mega bundle at comic shops, those 300 stores that they're in. For $100, you got a bag, a board, and a sticker. And ultimately, you were prepaying for the next five series, but you don't know what they are. <laughs> like at least with the spider-man thing you knew which books you're getting they're pre-selling books that haven't even been announced yet but if you're that into what bad idea is doing you will pay the i believe it was 125 dollars. and most stores that i know that did it sold out because i mean they didn't wow. have to sell many of them but people blind pre-bought these books and all they got was a sticker out of it. And hopefully, bad idea doesn't go under before they deliver on the promise. <laughs> Gimmicks are back, baby. Yeah. Yep. That's, a, that is, a, ah, <laughs> I can't imagine. But, but like, it almost feels like these days, a hundred bucks for that many books is just kind of like, eh, that's how much I would spend anyway, ultimately. I might as yeah. well. But yeah. That's... Pretty much, because their books they start at five ninety nine each. Ooh, yeah. And they most start. of them, they start at five ninety nine. <laughs> They're bi monthly, but some of their specials have been like seven ninety nine, nine ninety nine. There was one book that was a dollar that could only be sold one day. Like they only allowed those retailers to sell it one Wednesday. And once Thursday rolled around, they were supposed to ship back any unsold copies. Like Bad Idea is constantly trying to figure out the next gimmick to make them stand out. Wow, they're doing it. That's working. Now, getting back to the Spider-Clone saga here, though, which is what was being promoted by Marvel, Wizard has been giving the Spider-Clone saga so much crap since it was announced. Even making Scarlet Spider Mort of the Month in this issue yep and so I wanted to tell you, I am going to be covering these issues promoted in this ad in the mini episode, because we have to see if Ben Riley's debut was really as terrible as we were led to believe, but in the pick section here in this issue, they talk about Spectacular Spider-Man number 218, and here is their description, just to give you an idea. Thankfully, starring the real Spidey and not the dreadful Spider-Mort, hey, that could be a new title, the dreadful Spider-Mort. If they could do Fantastic Force, they could do this anyway spidey cleans up after the puma's mess from amazing spider-man uh, 395 so i mean just like every chance they get they are crapping all over the spider clones so uh we will get the real deal here and see how spider hoodie debuted and uh, we'll get everybody's opinion on that i know you love spider hoodie i will let you know in this house when elise and i started dating and she started seeing my comics he's referred to as flash dance spider-man <laughs> <laughs> That is perfect. Wow. But, uh, you know, we also like when we, when we talk collectability, when we talk about blind buying something that often relates to, you know, those trading cards we love so much. So now it's time to get into Gambit's Deck of Cards.
Now, the big news this issue is Greg and Tim Hildebrandt, a.k.a. the Hildebrandt brothers. A lot of brothers in this issue. We got the Q-Birds, we got the Hildebrandts. Uh, they have painted a full 140-card set of Marvel Masterpieces with 10 holographic foil chase cards, an even more rare 9-card Power Blast set. And also, there's a gold plate sign subset, which is all 140 cards with a gold signature of the brothers pressed into it. And there is a 5-page ad that features a checklist and an interview with the Hildebrandt brothers in this issue where they reveal their introduction to any kind of comics work was through the X-Men Fleer 95 set that's coming out and now they have all sorts of Marvel work in the pipeline. There's even a contest in this issue where one lucky reader can win an original Venom painting by the Hildebrandt brothers while others can win a full set of Marvel Masterpieces 1994 or just a single pack of the cards. I gotta tell you you guys like this was a big series for me i'm curious were you guys collecting marvel masterpieces at this set in particular yes marvel <laughs> masterpieces they were the champagne of trading cards <laughs> they had a gold foil package Ooh, we gotta love that wrapper they were, just, have... they were beautiful. They were painted. And like the Hildebrandt, like I like that there was a consistent style since it was just the Hildebrandts doing it. Like they're beautiful. I still have them. Me too. That, Cause yeah. Cause the 1993 set was terrible. It was just, it was still painted, but it was all these different artists. And like you said, there was no consistency there. It was very frustrating to collect that set. Kevin, what about you and these cards? I have found these cards as well still in the binder that I probably ripped homework out of and said, I don't need that. <laughs> and tossed the homework side to put these cards in the sleeves in. I also, I don't remember if they did it with the Hildebrandt set, but didn't Marvel release like a three-issue limited series that was just pictures of these cards? I believe that was only for the 1993 series, because yeah, I have one of those issues, yeah, where it was a full comic book size, uh, you, know, you could look at the art, you know, in a large format, but I don't, I don't think... I think they did that for this series. I could be wrong, though. But I, I think the painted work around this time, because you got these card lines and you also got a factor in stuff Alex Ross did, mm -hmm. helped move the respectability of comics in a positive direction. Like, yeah. look, this is art. This is flat out art. This is beautiful. And, you know, whether we're seeing it as a cover, as a card, or the lucky people that might own one of these, the general public can't deny how beautiful they look. Yeah, I mean, they absolutely were fantastic. I, I still have my binder right in front of me here, too. I have, I have a full base set almost. The reason I say almost is I had to fill the spaces with the gold plate signature subset. And that was the most frustrating thing to me. As much as I loved it, I was like, they've done such a great job. It was so hard to get just the base card subset and the signatures like ruin the art because they're covering stuff wow. up, you know? And so like I have like all, you know, a few here and there where it's just like, oh, it's got the signature on it. Like I basically just like threw those in my devil's pile and never wanted them. <laughs> they just angered me uh but i actually what i ended up doing i did this for the first three just marvel universe sets and then the first three marvel masterpieces sets but i took a lot of my doubles and then framed them and just made like art with a, an actual you know wrapper in there a couple of the, the power blast and holofoil cards that i had doubles of and stuff so it's like it to me like you say it's art it is it's literal wall art for me and i i love it so much but next up there is an ad announcing wildcats 90 
94 as the first oversized all-chromium trading card series with 96 cards, two levels of chase cards, and the promise that each box would contain, quote, a wild disc barrel cap, an eye-popping CD-sized holographic foil disc. <laughs> Just like, wow, okay. Everything about that is terrible, because oversized, <laughs> they don't fit standard pages. No. Nope. This holographic foil disc, so you're going to have to put it in a jewel case. Like, there's there's no great way to preserve anything about this. Yeah, I, I actually have, like, a pack of the oversized, uh, like, Vertigo cards from DC, and it's just like, they stay in the package, because I couldn't put them anywhere else. No box, no, you know what I'm saying? They just did not fit. Well, during the baseball card collecting buzz, which was just like a couple years before this issue that we're discussing, there's a company called Bowman that did oversized baseball cards. And they had to have separate sheets that instead of your standard nine on one sheet, you could fit six. So most of your card stores would have the special Bowman ones for it. Yeah, I think it was it was too hard for my young mind to switch over <laughs> and to accept it. So yeah, uh, now Mark Silvestri, not to be outdone by Jim Lee, has a 90-card Cyberforce set hitting stores, as does Vampirella from Harris Comics, and Dark Horse has an Aliens Predator Universe card set featuring comics cover art as well as pieces commissioned just for this set. But... Finally, Mighty Morphin Power Rangers have a popular card series that has a parallel etch-foiled version of the main card in the set. Basically, you could collect all the main regular photo cards and then all the rest of them have a glittery look to it. And plus, there are 12 Mighty Morpher cards with a lenticular feature that allows for the transformation from Teenager with Attitude to Power Ranger. William, how many packs of these did you pick up back in the day? <laughs> A lot. <laughs> and they were terrible cards. Like, from, like, a trading card standpoint, they're really kind of blah. But I have a lot of them somewhere. The one I'm looking at right now in front of me, I have a Green Ranger parallel etch-foiled version in front of me that I got back in the day. But just, like, the color on the back of these cards, it was just all swirly and, like, you know, yeah. multicolored. It was very hippy-dippy. <laughs> Yes. So that that for me that was a fun set. I remember the card I was most after. We mentioned her earlier, but there's a card where Amy Joe Johnson and then I think like Trini was there and like one of the guys, they were like at the beach, but Amy Joe Johnson was wearing Daisy Dukes but also had a swimsuit on. Whatever that was like, oh like that was my card as a, a twelve, thirteen year old. I was just like, Oh, go to the beach with Amy Joe. <laughs> I remember that card. Yes, that was an excellent <laughs> card. <Yeah. laughs> now, uh, real quick, before we wrap up, get to the end of the episode here, I just a shout out to Palmer's Picks, because in this issue, Tom Palmer, who, as of this recording, we recently had on the Wizard Files, he reviews Tyrant by Steve Bissett, and we gave this book with a 10-year publication plan to follow the life of a dinosaur some crap for being too high-concept and too high-minded uh, in an earlier episode. But Tom cited this as one of his favorite series that he wishes had made it past the handful of issues that actually managed to make it to press before Steve closed up shop on this particular plan of his. So, a bit of a retraction. If Tom Palmer says it was worth it, 
I guess go check it out because apparently it had a whole lot more than just the story. It had a lot of like almost like fanzine type features in the back where he was just writing about all his favorite things, including dinosaurs that he'd been studying since he was a kid and then had like little cartoon strips and different things. So it was a full experience when you were reading an issue of Tyrant, not just some pretty dinosaur pictures. Well, I'm curious, what's the life expectancy of a dinosaur? (laughs) Well, it's just that he was covering it like in such detail. And I, I don't have the issue in front of me right now where they originally did the interview with him, but it was basically saying like, you know, each issue would be, you know, like a day, which is why it would take that long because he wasn't like jumping from, oh, now he's bored. Now he's a full grown dinosaur. It's like, what happens when he's conceived and then he comes out of the egg and then how does he grow? You know, that type of stuff. Wow. But now, you know, we always like to go out with some laughs. So it's time that we jump into Turok's Top 10. So these are the top 10 reasons why there wasn't a top 10 list in the last two issues of Wizard. So Stephen and Michael and I actually talked about this. They're like, oh yeah, are we doing the top 10? I was like, there is no top 10, guys. They're like, what? And then it didn't happen again. I was like, I guess it's over. But no, it's back. (laughs) So again, the top 10 reasons why there wasn't a top 10 list in the last two issues of Wizard. Number 10, Monkeys. It's that they're going to mess anything up. So I, I can understand. I'll cut him some slack. Number nine. Decided to sell the top ten list through QVC. Raked in serious cash. <laughs> In this issue, there's actually an ad for Mark Silvestri going on QVC that he's going to be selling his comics through QVC. So I think that that was why they were making that joke. Yeah, that was a big deal back in the day. I almost bought a couple books, like, from QVC. Never pulled the trigger, but I liked when they showed them. <laughs> Number eight. Too caught up in this whole Undertaker versus Undertaker mystery. Couldn't concentrate properly. Hey! How about it, Kevin? I remember that whole feud vividly. And yet it would be many, many issues until The Undertaker was actually on a cover of Wizard Magazine. Not a good series, either. <laughs> no, not better or one. worse than Warrior. Oh, better than Warrior. But you want to really read a good comic? Uh, one of the recent WWE ones where you find out all about The Shield having to fight because of some potato salad. <laughs> That's some quality storytelling right there. All right. Well, number seven, all the wizard staffers had to pool their money to pay Garib's bail and his plane ticket back from Mexico. Couldn't afford a top ten, much less two. (laughs) That sounds like something that someone would do if they were a fool and not cool. Ah, there's a loyal listener. (laughs) Number six, too busy wondering if OJ's going to be in the next Naked Gun movie. (laughs) That's actually the fourth OJ joke in this issue. <laughs> you have to change it to OJ and Todd type machine. Hot. <laughs> Number five. Wasted time figuring out how to explain the lack of a hunkin' babe this issue. Oh, for shame. What am I going to do on the mini episode? Be thankful I wasn't here to read the babe of the month. Yeah, probably <laughs> for the best. <laughs> Number four. No matter how hard we pushed, what? Couldn't release the enema? Part of the creative process, so they claim. Yes, well, moving on. <laughs> it was pre-zero hour wizard. We didn't have top tens back then. 
Speaking of Zero Hour, hope you all enjoyed Michael and I discussing Beyond Zero Hour and our thoughts on DC's confusing series. Number two, had barely recovered from the news that supermodel Anna Nicole Smith married some 89-year-old guy, were rendered unconscious with the Michael Jackson Lisa Marie wedding news. A moment in time here, guys. Now we know all of that happened in 1994. Wow. (laughs) And number one, still reeling from scathing column in the back of Gen 13 number four, morale real low. Okay, so if you guys don't know what this is, I covered this way back on a mini episode regarding this whole uh, situation with J. Scott Campbell. We've already heard what happened to Will. Well, back in the day, apparently Wizard made a joke that basically was like paint by numbers how you get a hot image book and basically said Gen 13 had some cheap practices and uh, that's why they were such a big deal and selling so well and j scott campbell wrote a whole big letter just ripping wizard a new one where he said oh well here's how you get people to buy your comics magazine you know he's like include trading card blah 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 you know so he like he just fired back at them and uh yeah and he he signed off with like you know j scott campbell who will never be featured in the wizard top 10 list but very shortly he is in the wizard top 10 list (laughs) would you say he put them on blast as the kids say hey there you go we're hip we're with it but here's the thing i scoured the issues of wizard and did not find where they said that like i've been reading i've been waiting for it to come up because i knew it was here about here in the continuity i'm still looking so if anybody has your 1993 late 93 early 94 issues and you find that please let me know because that is still escaping me but there you have it, Turok's Top 10. And Kevin, well, this was so much fun. Like, I, I'm glad we got to have these conversations that can only be had with you. But, you know, if people want more of your raucous commentary, William, where can they find you? They can find me on Twitter at William B. West or at my website is recently rebranded as westweekever.com. And how about you, Kevin? You can find my own personal blog over at maskedlibrary.com. You can find me across the internet on social media at Masked Library. And as part of the Retro Network, you can listen to my one-on-one or sometimes one-on-two interviews as part of the Hellions Talk series. Uh, and before we go here, some breaking news. This is a kind of a big thing. Uh, we have been planning for the 30th anniversary of Wizard in August. And as a part of that... We have organized the 30th anniversary Wizard Reunion. Okay, no Comic-Con was doing this. No Wizard World was not doing this. But obviously, we've been in touch with so many of the essential people who are creating Wizard Magazine through the Wizard Files. And all along the way, I was confirming their attendance at this reunion. And we have a huge lineup. It's from Wizard that are going to participate in this. And you aren't going to want to miss it. It's going to be coming out in August. But it's going to be a very, very fun video and podcast that we'll be releasing where you get to experience what it was like in a wizard pitch meeting that is what we were doing with this is they are pitching a 30th anniversary issue that they will all collaborate on except that we don't have the rights to wizard the guide to comics so now we are creating this punk rock bootleg wizard 30th anniversary issue and uh, the conversation is a whole lot of fun so keep an eye out for that and hey tell your friends but until next time keep your books bagged and boarded
This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.